bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, October 29th, 2019. Two years ago, this coming Saturday, the House Ways and Means Committee released tax reform legislation. The original proposal would have eliminated the new Marcus tax credit and the historic tax credit, while repealing the tax exemption for private activity bonds. That was, of course, the first version of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, legislation that became law nearly two months later. And as you know, the version of the bill that passed did retain taxes and private activity bonds, did retain the new Marcus tax credit, as well as the 20% historic tax credit. Although the historic tax credit is now taken over five years, as opposed to when the property is placed in service. That tax reform legislation did lower the corporate tax rate and included the Opportunity Zones incentive, which meant it has been incredibly important to affordable housing and community development. Or perhaps it might be better to say it's been incredibly impactful. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about some of those issues, starting with last week's Novogratic Opportunity Zones Conference and what we learned about the timing of the release of the next round of Treasury guidance. I'll also share Opportunity Zone news, give some insight on difficult development area and qualified census tracts for the year 2020, as well as tell you about a report as to how HUD's Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, or RAD, is doing. And then we'll finish with a roundup of federal and state-level news in community development, renewable energy, and affordable housing. If you're ready, let's get started. I was pleased to see many of you at the Novogratic Opportunity Zones Fall Conference last week in Chicago. We had a terrific turnout and a great lineup of speakers. Scott Turner, Executive Director of the White House Opportunity Revitalization Council, kicked off the conference on Thursday morning. Executive Director Turner gave a very inspiring keynote address on the intent of Opportunity Zones and examples of Opportunity Fund investments in areas across the country. Our other keynote speaker was Daniel Kowalski, Counselor to the Treasury Secretary. He spoke on Friday morning. Mr. Kowalski works directly on the formulation of Opportunity Zones guidance. He said the number one question he gets asked is, no surprise, when the updated Opportunity Zones guidance will come out. And he said, and I quote, soon. He said that because the Opportunity Zones guidance is under current deliberation, he wasn't able to share how Treasury is leaning on certain regulatory issues. And Mr. Kowalski did thank attendees for their interest in work in Opportunity Zones, and he did say that it was nice being at a conference where people understood what they're talking about Opportunity Zones related, which was quite a compliment and credit to all of our attendees. While he wasn't able to share how Treasury is leaning on certain regulatory issues, Mr. Kowalski was able to give an overview on some of the more significant areas with when which Treasury did receive comment letters as to guidance changes and recommendations and expansions of the existing regulations. That should serve as a bit of an insight in terms of what areas are likely to get attention in the next updated draft of the regulations. And as I've said in the past, we at Novogratic do expect to see the regulations, the updated regulations, by the end of the year. We do expect a large portion of them to be final and the first and second set to be merged together. And there could be a portion of the regulatory guidance that is proposed in the sense that Treasury wants to get additional comments on a handful of areas potentially that involve new areas of guidance. It's possible the guidance could come out before Thanksgiving, but as we get every day closer, it's looking more and more unlikely. 
Because as we've also said in the past, the regulations do have to go from Treasury to the Office of Management Budget, their OIRA, uh, for a review by Office of Management Budget before they're released to the public. And that period of time in the past has taken 30 plus days. So stay tuned. And as always, make sure you're registered for the Novograd Breaking News email so you're alerted when those regulations do go to OIRA and then when they are released. I was also honored to moderate the Washington Report panel with leaders from the White House, HUD, and the Opportunity Zone's private sector. Jerron Smith of the Office of American Innovation in the Executive Office of the President shared updates on what his office has been doing to promote Opportunity Zones. Jerron said his team has a three-pronged approach. One, help encourage individuals and local communities to use their tools in conjunction with federal resources. Two, educate people on how to make public-private partnerships and collaborations work. And three, help local communities develop strategies on how they can use the Opportunity Zones incentive to attract capital. Also on that panel was HUD's Deputy Chief of Staff, Alfonso Costa, Jr. Alfonso talked about how several agencies are working on an Opportunity Zones report that they plan to submit to the President. They hope to have the report submitted for the first anniversary of the executive order that created the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council. That, by the way, would be December 12th. Alfonso said the report will have updates on economic development, entrepreneurship, safe neighborhoods, workforce development, and others. And he said the report will also sub submit about 170 Opportunity Zones-related recommendations. Alfonso also said that the report to the President will touch on a white paper that the Council of Economic Advisors plans to release in the spring. And he said he's hoping that the Council of Economic Advisors will discuss IRIS Form 8996 for Quality Opportunity Funds and what kinds of valuable data Form 8996 could include. Shea Hawkins, CEO of the Opportunity Funds Association, was also on our Washington Report panel. Shea was formerly the tax advisor to Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who is the lead sponsor of Opportunity Zones legislation. Shea talked about the possibility of Opportunity Zones legislation being enacted this year. And he said that if we're looking for legislation that has movement or momentum right now, then it would be an Opportunity Zones reporting bill. Many of you know that the original Opportunity Zones legislation did include reporting provisions. However, the reporting requirements were stripped from the enacted legislation pursuant to the arcane bird rule. Now, the original sponsors intended to introduce a separate reporting requirements bill, which they did. Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina and Democratic Senator Cory Brooker of New Jersey introduced a reporting bill earlier this year. And Shea said that the bipartisan nature of the reporting bill would make it much easier to pass relative to other priorities. Fellow panelist John Lattieri of the Economic Innovation Group agreed on the support and need and importance of reporting requirements. John said that the reporting requirement bill is the most possible, most likely, and one of the most important issues to address. John said that if it wanted to, Congress could pass a reporting requirements bill today on a bipartisan basis. We also had terrific panel discussions on fund sponsors, structuring considerations, and more during the course of the conference. I want to thank our keynote speakers, as well as our panelists, co-host sponsors, and of course, the attendees, for their role in making Opportunity Zones Conference such a success. Now, our, our events team is working on finalizing details for the next Novogratic Opportunity Zones Conference in the spring. I'll share details with you about that conference in a future podcast. Now, some related Opportunity Zones news. First, 
we have an update on the Novogratz Opportunity Funds listing. As of last week, which we announced at the conference, the 112 qualified opportunity funds that have reported investments to us have reported a combined $3.17 billion in equity raised. Now there are 287 funds on our list in total. We have fundraising information on 112 of them. The big takeaway from our survey of the list of qualified opportunity funds is there's a great focus on residential development. Funds that have as their only focus or part of a larger focus have raised $2.8 billion of the $3.17 billion. The other major takeaway is that funds focused on operating businesses are struggling a little bit so far. Now I wrote a blog post on the results which explain what's happening and give you a feel for why as well as what's coming up. There's a link to the blog post in today's show notes and I'll tweet it out as well. And in another bit of Opportunity Zones news, the Novogratz Opportunity Zones Working Group has submitted letters to two groups that oversee the Community Reinvestment Act. The letters propose that Opportunity Zones investments qualify for CRA consideration. The Working Group letters said that Opportunity Zones investments should qualify as public welfare investments and receive positive CRA consideration because they primarily benefit low and moderate income individuals and areas. The letters were sent to the Federal Reserve and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. A link to the comment letters are attached to today's show notes, as well as a link to the Opportunity Zones Working Group homepage. I'll tweet out that link as well. And in affordable housing news, HUD released the 2020 list of difficult development areas and qualified census tracts, known as DDAs and QCTs, recently, as I noted in last week's podcast. Low-income housing tax credit properties located in DDAs and QCTs are qualified to increase eligible basis by 30% for new construction rehabilitation costs. This 30% boost in basis translates to a corresponding larger maximum allowable low-income housing tax credit award. That's why developers show great interest in DDAs and QCTs as well as communities. Now, the recently announced DDAs and QCTs are effective for low-income housing tax allocations after December 31, 2019. The DDAs and QCTs are also effective for bond finance properties where the bonds are issued and the building is placed in service after December 31, 2019. Now, as a reminder, non-metro DDAs are designated on a county basis. Metro DDAs, also known as small area DDAs or SDDAs, are designated on a zip code basis. There are multiple differences in QCT and DDA designations from 2019 to 2020. Today, I'll focus on the differences in DDAs, primarily looking at areas that were declared DDAs or that lost DDA designation for 2020. Let's compare the change in Metro SDDAs between 2019 and 2020. There are 326 areas that lost SDDA designation and 362 areas that gained the designation. For non-metro DDAs, 70 areas lost the designation and 94 were designated as DDAs. Now, if you're working on a long-term test property that is losing or gaining its DDA or QCT designation, this is important. Of most importance is the fact that if you're working in an area that's losing the DDA designation, you still may be able to preserve the 30% boost. HUD describes this approach as extending the effective date. The main requirement is that the developers submit a complete application to the state agency before the effective date of the new DDAs. DDAs and QCTs 
are effective January 1, 2020, so applications would need to be submitted by December 31st of this year. Also, a complete application needs to be submitted, and that's generally interpreted to mean no more than a de minimis clarification is required for the allocating agency to make a decision to allocate credits or bonds to the project. The agency decides what counts as a complete application for this purpose. Now, there are additional subsequent deadlines later in the process. If you have any questions, please contact my partner, Thomas Stagg, on how the new QCTs and DDAs may affect your local housing tax credit development. In other affordable housing news, a research firm hired by HUD released a report last week on the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, or RAD. As you know, RAD provides a method for public housing authorities to leverage public and private debt and equity to rehabilitate their properties, properties that face a tremendous backlog of capital needs. The program was launched in 2011 and has been revised four times, while the number of units that can be converted under RAD has increased three times, most recently to a total of 455,000 units. By the way, that's 455,000 out of about 1.2 million public housing units in the nation. The report concluded that RAD is accomplishing its main goals. Perhaps the biggest takeaway is that RAD has attracted capital to stabilize and improve public housing. The study found that RAD attracts $9.66 for every dollar of federally appropriated public housing funds. Much of that $9.66 comes from low-income housing tax credit equity. The survey highlighted that throughout last October, RAD projects raised $12.6 billion in capital to renovate nearly 1,000 public housing properties. Those properties have more than 100,000 apartments in them. The report also said that the physical condition of properties improves under RAD, meaning the capital needs expenses decrease. The report also surveyed tenants and showed a general satisfaction with the properties. There are plenty of other facts in the report, but the bottom line is that RAD is achieving its goals of renovating public housing and improving that housing for tenants. We do have a link to the RAD report in today's show notes. And if you have any questions about whether you should consider RAD, or if you're in the middle of a RAD transaction and you need help, please contact my partner, Rich Larson, in our Toms River, New Jersey office. Also, consider being part of our Novogradic 2020 RAD Public Housing Conference. It's going to be held in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, January 9th and 10th next year. There's a link to the conference in today's show notes, and I'll tweet it out. In other news, a report that was updated by the Council of Development Finance Agencies last week reported a combined $22.1 billion in multifamily and single-family taxes and private activity bond issuance. That's for 2018. Multifamily housing bonds made up $14.7 billion of that $22.1 billion total. Now these bonds, the $14.7 billion, are paired with 4% low-income housing tax credits. There is a link to the full report in today's show notes. Now turning to Congress, companion bills were introduced in the House and the Senate last week to create a tax credit for rent burdened taxpayers. Now the legislation would also require states that receive certain federal funding to create inclusive zoning. Now, the HOME Act, which is what the bill is known as, was introduced by Senator Cory Booker, who's also a presidential candidate, as you know, and Representative James Clyburn. The bill, specifically, would create a tax credit for renters who pay more than 30% of their pre-tax income in rent. 
And the legislation would also require that cities receiving surface transportation funding or community development block grant funding, they would have to have inclusive zoning policies. And elsewhere, the Federal Housing Finance Agency released a request seeking public input on changes that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac propose for their underserved markets for 2018 through 2020. The proposals outline how Fannie and Freddie intend to fulfill their obligations under the duty to serve rule to support lending for moderate, low, and very low-income families. The FHFA request document is in today's show notes. The document summarizes proposed changes and explains how to comment. In other housing news, HUD announced last week that the Real Estate Assessment Center, REAC, will not adopt the accounting standards update 2016-18 on restricted cash in the REAC financial templates. That update became part of the generally accepted accounting principles, so there's now going to be a difference between GAAP accounting and HUD-based financial statements. Now, if you are with a public housing authority or are responsible for filing financial forms with HUD, it means you're going to have to continue to submit to REAC the changes in escrows and reserves for replacements in the investment section of the supplementary statement of cash flows. A bit of mumbo-jumbo there, accounting mumbo-jumbo to many, but if you have any questions, please reach out to my partner, Nick Hain, in our Austin, Texas office. Now let's turn to renewable energy news. Mayors from 231 cities last week sent a letter to Congress asking for passage of the Renewable Energy Extension Act. This act would extend the Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit for five years. As you likely know, the ITC is set to begin phasing down in 2020, dropping to 10% in 2022. You may recall H.R. 3961 and S. 2289 were introduced in Congress earlier this year, and they would extend the ITC and postpone the phasing down of the ITC. Moving to state-level news, last week, the Oklahoma Tax Commission issued a letter ruling for state historic tax credits. The Tax Commission allowed a taxpayer to claim all of the 20% state historic tax credits for the year the qualified rehabilitation expenditures were placed in service and will allow the transfer of the credits to a third party within five years of the property qualifying for the credits. Like federal private letter rulings, this applies only to the specific taxpayer but gives us insight into how the state views the credits. A copy of the ruling is attached in today's show notes. In other historic tax credit news, the Missouri Department of Economic Development this month has terminated emergency amendments for terms used in the program overview and application for the state historic tax credit. The updated definitions will take effect November 29th. This means if you're working on an historic tax credit transaction in Missouri, you need to be aware of the new definitions. Please contact my partner, Michael Kresig, in our St. Louis office if you have any questions. And in some final state-level news, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam last week announced the launch of an initiative to leverage the Federal Opportunity Zones Incentive. The initiative, called Opportunity Virginia, is a marketplace to connect communities and opportunity zones with investors and to educate stakeholders and share project ideas and pipelines. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. We talked earlier about last week's Opportunity Zones Conference, and I want to remind you that the November 2019 Financing Renewable Energy Tax Credits Conference is coming up in a little more than a week. The conference is November 7th and 8th in Washington, D.C., and we have a full agenda of interesting sessions, including a keynote address by Senator John Thune of South Dakota. There's still time to register, and I will include a link to the conference in today's show notes. And 
tweet it out. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.